there is more to the story than what the author was thinking in his human brain as he penned the words and what the the immediate hearers were thinking as they heard them because God was involved in writing this story. Welcome to That They Might Know with Greg Treat. I'm Joe Durso, your host for this episode entitled The Bible, One Book. The Bible is not referred to as man's word, but the word of God. The Christian is the man that understands, as the apostle Peter, that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In this episode, Greg is going to consider the ramifications of interpreting a book that is written by men, but inspired by God. It's not an easy thing to understand that God is working behind the scenes in everything that happens. Neither is it a simple matter to distinguish between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. However, there's no better place to begin than with the inspiration of Scripture. It is our hope that the reality of God's inspired word will bless you with his own nearness and our responsibility to him. Well, uh, to, today we I wanted to ground this in and and ground our, our our podcast and kind of the the larger project that we're doing in in one of in, in the arguably the most conservative principle of all, which is the the unity of God and the unity of the scriptures. So. I think it's important for us to remember that the Bible is one book written by one author for one purpose. Let me say that again. The Bible is one book written by one author for one purpose. Now, you know, in in history we know that the Bible was written in in terms of the men that wrote it down by 40 men and you know there's there's this over a thousand years of history different languages different places and that just kind of makes the bible even more amazing because when you read it people are struck by how much it is one book with one author and there's clearly one purpose that runs through the Bible. The Bible is one story, we might also say. And this unity, I mean, it goes back to, to the very beginning of, of people calling themselves the people of God. I mean, there's that, the, the, the classic verse, the, the Israelite confession of faith in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, your God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And uh, that that's that's a great and a perfect and a true statement. Since we're since we're basically Greeks here in America, I'm going to give you the Greek version, which is found in Mark 12:29 through 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The the ancient Hebrew word for might includes that let's say but because we uh, we like to divide things up we want to distinguish between our heart and our mind and our heart and our soul and you know that these internal things we're saying well those are different things and so mark just kind of makes it clear for his greek audience and his roman audience yeah it, it's everything it's everything but we start with that that great shema statement hero israel the lord your god the lord is one. And we affirm that, right? And we understand that, we that that's that's something you can never get over. You can never move away from it. And we, we, we understand the full richness of the Trinity as Christians. Well, we don't understand it, but we, we have some... We, we understand it in, a, in some functional senses. But... We never move away from that first statement that God is one. And we understand that, that he is supernaturally revealing things to us in the scriptures. 
and and I just kind of want to take a take a moment here to talk about something that I think is is not understood by the church at large. There used to be a lot more people that were looking for the story of the Bible about, you know, 200 years plus ago, essentially all pastors, all theologians, it was common, it was understood, it was accepted to look for the story of the Bible, to look for the patterns that the Bible revealed and to say, we should, we should treat these as for today and and we should essentially expect to be able to build our lives based on these principles. Then the idea was is that the Bible gives you spiritual truths that that would allow you that that were designed to help people say build their houses. And those truths are still valid today. If you want to build a house in the style that God builds his house, look to the Bible. And then we had the the invention of darwinism and we had you know all the evolutionary theory and the birth of of modern secular humanist atheism and the birth of higher criticism in re- religious studies and theological studies many people have heard of the the quote historical grammatical interpretation and that's a that's a valid it's, it's a necessary method of interpretation it's certainly better than just kind of topical nonsense where you start with or where you know you you start with a scripture and then just take off right <laughs> and and fly to wherever you're going <laughs> um you mean leaving the text, right? so it's important for us to to start with an historical grammatical means what did the original writer the the guy that was penning the words what did he think they mean and what did the people he was writing to think those words meant and, and, and that's important because we don't want to read words uh, that were designed to fit into a particular cultural context and forget that that cultural context existed or forget that that linguistic quirk existed because that can lead to, to poor interpretation. So we start with what is, what is the, the interpretation that the people of the day would have immediately intuitively understood? What is the plain meaning? Which is never just as, a, as an aside, never particularly plain. And so I don't, I don't discount the historical grammatical hermeneutic. That, that point of view is necessary, is valid. You've always got to start when you take a passage of scripture with what, what is that, that literal meaning, that literal plain meaning to the, to the best that you can, right? Because one of the corollaries of that is you have to have a fairly good extra biblical uh, historical sources to tell you anything that's not explicitly laid out in the Bible. And so can we define a yeah, word really quick? Yeah. Hermeneutical just means that you sort of yeah. your interpretive tack that what do you do when you, when you read something? Uh, so you, you read it and it means something in English and then you're, you're saying, okay, so what, what does this mean? And, and, and however you proceed to answer that question, what sources you look to, what your reasoning is, what, where you go first in particular, that's your hermeneutic. Um, and so, I mean, if you have any, any kind of rules about, you know, the, a, a text without a context is a pretext, right? That's a hermeneutical principle. And the better you follow those rules, the more likelihood you are of actually discovering the writer's Quite. intent. While, as, and, and since we're, we're Calvinists, we always have to remind everyone, especially the other Calvinists, that uh, while remaining fully understand, while remaining fully in mind that, that man's reason is one of those things that are totally depraved by the total depravity of man. And so you're never going to get it perfect. Accept it. Move on. <laughs> uh, or rather, we, we have to remain humble enough to recognize that it, and, and if God shows us that we have committed an error, we be grateful and not uh, not upset. But there is a don't let don't let pride. <laughs> but there is a, a a negative possibility, and and I think that when we when we look at where the historical the historical grammatical interpretation comes from, 
it, it actually comes in many ways from the higher critics. So the higher critics started with some assumptions. The first assumption was basically that there, there really isn't a God or that if there is a God, you know, he's not the primary mover that, 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 you know, supernatural things are, aren't really real. And, and we, we know how science works. And so the people that, the people that thought that there were miracles, they, they were just wrong or they were superstitious or ignorant or whatever. And that is the, the starting point of the higher critics. And so for them, what was important was what did this ignorant person understand? That's what these texts mean. And, and their intent was to kind of move away from them and dismiss them and maybe extract some moral teaching here and there, but in general to, frankly, to discredit the scriptures. And of course, we who who believe the Bible understand that the Bible is divine, is sufficient, is all of those things. And yet we have gotten many, in many cases caught in this trap of, well, we we're going to move away from treating the Bible as, as one book, as, as, as a divine story written by a divine author, you know, and, and you can get into the weeds on how specifically God ordained that the scriptures be written. But the point is, is that he got his point across, right? However he moved, however the spirit moved on the, the authors of the text, what came out was what God wanted to come out. <laughs> and, and so, um, exactly. you know, people, people really get into, well, was, was, you know, did the spirit overbear people's wills? You know, was there, you know, different levels of inspiration? Da, 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 da. Who cares? God is in control. And the book says word for word exactly what he meant it to say. And we know this. Amen. Because, among other things, God told us. And in Matthew 5, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ talks about the the scriptures and then at that point in the Old Testament. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, and and, you know, there's that great King James language, jot or tittle, uh, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law, the Bible is one thing. It's one one book moving from a beginning to a conclusion, and and you know we'll get into some specific scriptures later. But that that's kind of the big picture point of Hebrews. Right, the big picture point of Hebrews is, is Christ is the legitimate heir, the legitimate fulfillment of, of all of the prophecies and all of the practices uh, that were set up under the Old Testament law. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ and his fulfilling work. Everything. That's, that's a big picture summary of, of Hebrews. And so we have to keep in mind that there is more to the story than the, the the than a strict historical grammatical interpretation there is more to the story than what the author was thinking in his human brain as he penned the words and what the the immediate hearers were thinking as they heard them because god was involved in writing this story Right. When David writes these songs, I mean, the the indications is is he was overcome with, with an ecstatic expression that, that what God was doing to him, what the Spirit of God was doing to him when, when he was penning, you know, those messianic psalms was something that David didn't understand. And he, but I mean, he was perfectly okay. He was perfectly, he wasn't out of control in in the way that people that, that we, we see in, in some of the modern day abuses of this stuff. But David didn't, he knew that he didn't fully understand the words that he had just penned, most likely. And that's okay. The key word being fully. Yeah. He understood in part. And well, and of course, we know we've got to remind ourselves we only understand in part, right? We're not in heaven yet. Uh, Again, that that, that we see see through through a glass glass darkly, darkly, through a mirror, yeah. 
But I think it's important to remember that there are other interpret, there are other necessary interpretive levels. Okay. You, now I agree with, with that you need to start with a historical grammatical. You need to start with what did the original author intend and what did the original hearers hear. And then, because that's a good guide, because God generally, well, God as a rule does not, does not, He's not playing games with people. He doesn't trick them, right? So what they heard and what the original writer intended is is part, usually a very, very small part, of what God intended. But it's there. It's kind of the, the first signpost. Because everything is consistent at every level of interpretation. That's one of the ways that we know that the Bible is divine. But there are other necessary levels of interpretation, and the most explicit is the one that Christ judged the Pharisees for, which is the typological interpretation that would have allowed you to look at the Old Testament scriptures and understand that Christ was coming. And so there's that the, the passage that, that is my personal favorite on this is is the one in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus and, and we'll we'll get to you uh, you know that that's um, it's, it'll end right before that famous verse of, of John 3.16. But starting in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then it starts with, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life and not perish. Right? I love that this section begins with a question from Mm -hmm. Jesus. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Yep. Well, and and again, it, it, the the interesting thing about this is is Jesus is judging him. He's saying you failed. And, and there's people that they 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 want to dismiss this question. They want to say that this is rhetorical. They want to say that that this is Christ. Um, you know, in some way that that in some way. Christ is is saying, well, this is just kind of part of the, the, the human race. And, well, that's not a historical grammatical interpretation of the text, folks. <laughs> that is injecting a substantial, substantial amount of, of other stuff in there. So the literal meaning of this text is that because the Pharisees did not correctly apply a typological interpretation of the Old Testament and and by and thereby understand that Christ was coming, they were wrong and Christ rebuked them for it. They were wrong and Christ rebuked them for it. So so we have to understand that there is another level of the Bible in in which God is 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 talking about his eternal purposes in which he is building out his eternal case. And that's the point of the Bible. Okay? When we, when we just focus on the historical grammatical interpretation, we are led into the trap of the higher critics, which is to, to get very caught up in the differences between the authors and the differences between the cultures and the differences between the mosaic period and the, uh, you know, the, 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 the period of the judges and the period of the kings and the period of the prophets. Cause I mean, these were dramatically different societies, right? Even in just in the Old Testament. Never mind moving on to the New Testament, which, which, you know, is again dramatically different from any of the other prior periods. So we have to remember that there is a unifying principle. There is a unifying theme that runs through the whole Bible and that, that God intended, right? And again, in, in John 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And again, Christ is making this this statement. It is on this basis that I'm judging you. I am saying you should have been expecting me. You should have, and not just been expecting me, you should have been expecting my message down to some fairly specific particulars about being lifted up, about salvation and how it was going to come. And, 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 you know, re- referring back to the John 3 passage, that, that you would have to be born again. So this type of interpretation, this, this typological interpretation really is understanding that the Bible is one book written by one author for one purpose. And, and what would be, and if that's true, we should expect there to be themes that run through the whole Bible, despite the, the manifest and, and radical differences in culture between the different periods in the Old Testament, within the Old Testament, and between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We should expect these, these themes to run through the whole scriptures and be a unifying force. And then, and then, Joe, do you have any do you have any thoughts at this point before I move on to the to Hebrews because Hebrews will take us a bit. Well, I just want to let me see if I hear what you're saying uh, that there are always two authors involved in writing the scripture. Mm-hmm. There's the actual man who sat down with pen and quill and paper of some sort and wrote down his thoughts, mm-hmm. and that there's God who, to a very real degree, uh, saw what the man was doing, inspired the man in what he was doing, overruled, if you will, what the man was doing, not undoing it, but putting his stamp, making it his word. We refer to it as the Mm -hmm. word of God. There's the word of Hosea. There's the word of Isaiah. You know, there's different human authors. But what I'm hearing you say throughout this whole episode is that there is a superseding of the human element by the by the God of history who makes it a unified one book, you know, theme, subject, all one coming from the one true God that actually supersedes all cultures, all generations, all people and makes it that important for the very reason that it is a unified book. It is one book and it is the word of God. Is that close? That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, that, that verse in second Timothy, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I mean, that's it, right? And, 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 and we have to believe that, right? If we don't believe that, then we don't have any foundation for knowledge. We don't know what to do. We don't know what the Christian faith means. And, and and at a certain point, we realize that we're just sort of making it up. If you don't have a firm foundation on the scriptures, if the scriptures are just a collection, if they're a synthesis, if they're a, you know, whatever the words that these people use, if they're, if those ideas, and, and even if we don't use the words, and this is my concern, that in many allegedly conservative churches in this country and elsewhere, we, we mouth statements like 2 Timothy 3.16 about this amazing statement of the unity of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed, right? But in practice, we approach Scripture and we say, well, before I can take anything out of this, before I can understand this, I have to take a look at at the the author i have to take a look at the people and really what they're saying is i have to take a look at our current historical understanding let's 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 be charitable here understanding um something you know of of what those things were and this places me in a great deal of dependence on scholars i mean that the whole thing of of because because our historical understandings or our historical speculations to be uncharitable now 
change, right? The, 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 you know, in the last several decades, the new, the new perspective on Paul. What does the new perspective on Paul comes, come from? Well, if you, if, if, if you have a, a quote, historical grammatical interpretation, and that requires you to go and, and read what our current understanding of history is about these cultures. Well, what happens if our historical understanding changes? Do, do, do you then go back and change your understanding of the scriptures? Right? <laughs> Not if you believe exactly, God's the right? Not if you believe God's the author. Not if you believe that there is a superseding over that, that the scripture is sufficient in itself. To, to serve as an, an interpretive guide, right? And, and it's great to have, you know, linguistic stuff and to, to know what we, what we can know to some extent about who these people were. But even leaving that aside, God left us, you know, that, that, that classic statement of faith that scripture is, is, uh, the sufficient guide for life and practice. So, in the scripture is everything you really need to get the messages that God intended you to get. And, and what is that message? And I think one of the, one of the, we, we, we go to, um, one of the, the great metaphors that, that, it, that the Bible uses over and over throughout its history is this, this metaphor of a mountain or a city. And, and then just kind of to, to, to give us an understanding of what's happening, everything that's happening on earth is a, is a shadow. We, we get the word types um, from Hebrews 8. So there's verses that says, For there are already priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve at a copy or a type and shadow of, of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Okay? So God has a heavenly archetype, we could call it. A heavenly form, to use the platonic language. And everything that we're doing on earth are imitations of that. And when one of the things that's going to happen when Christ comes in glory is that we're finally going to be able to successfully set up the pattern, the heavenly pattern on earth, right? That's, that's why that, you know, in, in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's praying for a couple of things. One of which is that, that we would work out in our lives according to these patterns to, to some limited degree. But it's also praying for Christ to return and actually finish the job and set up the final pattern and perfectly accord what's done on earth and what's done in heaven. But so this is this is the larger principle that that there are these types that all of human history and and certainly all of biblical history is meant to to illuminate what's going on, particularly in the life of Christ. Because because Moses wrote about Christ. We just heard Christ saying that. Moses wrote about Christ. The scriptures are about Christ. The scriptures are about the work and the, the message and the nature of Christ. And and, and, and Christ judges them on, on real specific grounds. So what is that that message that's been believed since since the founding of, of uh, since God first kind of started picking up people? And is that a question? Well, me? I'm about to go into to uh, to Hebrews 11, but but if any, do you have? Well, do you have any thoughts? Okay, no, that? go do so. it. Well, I, I I want to just add in a real uh, kind of a quick mm-hmm. quote here from uh, Walt Kaiser Jr.'s book toward an exegetical theology, and there is this uh, you know difference between what you've been repeatedly saying in a good way in this episode about a literal interpretation Mm -hmm. as over against allegorizing the scripture. So the quote is, Calvin was not one whit softer on the allegorizers. Uh, Just making it, well, let me finish the quote. Commenting on Galatians 4, 21 to 26, he blasted every such introduction and foisting of numerous meanings onto scripture as a contrivance of Satan. So in other words, the person who looks at the scripture 
in such a way that it can mean whatever you want it to mean. Uh, according to Calvin, was a, a person who was, uh, it was a contrivance of Satan. In other words, you're believing, and I, this is what I'm hearing you say, and I know you believe this, that the Bible <clears throat> is, needs to be taken literally. That the author, what the author intended, the human author, that there is a literal meaning behind what he was saying. Superseding that meaning, God is writing a book. And that book that's being written, if you follow those rules of taking the Bible literally, you will come to the conclusion that God who's superseding the human author has intended. But if you read into the scripture, your own ideas, you will miss that meaning. And that's where Calvin's quote comes in, a contrivance of Satan. We don't want to supersede God in the meaning of his word. Well, and time won't permit me to prove what I'm about to say rigorously because it would just take, you know, hours, maybe, maybe, you know, might be like a full-time class, but we're, I'm not saying that you can just go around and randomly look at scriptures and say, well, these have this other meaning. What, What I'm saying is that the, the meanings that are important were are, are, are signposted for us. Go around and look at the, all the key texts, basically, for, for the stuff that we're going to get into, are singled out by the apostles. You know, the apostles quote the Old Testament, and they draw out mm. certain things. And Jesus quotes yep. the Old Testament, and he draws out certain things. That's where we get these ideas from. And so the, the big themes, the themes that God wants you to know, they do. They, they make explicit. They point it out. Um, and, and, and again, like I've said, the, the, one of the most important metaphors, one of the most important larger themes that the, a point that God is making is this idea of a city. So I'm going to read in, in Isaiah 11, part of the, the, the hall of fame of faith, starting verse eight. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went without knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the promised land as a stranger in a strange land. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Sarah, even though she was barren and beyond the opportune age, was unable to conceive a child because she considered him faithful who had promised. And so from one man, and he as good as dead, come descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people died in faith without having received the things they were promised. However, they saw them and welcomed them from afar, and they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, those who say such things, and then he what is it, what are they saying? They're saying they're strangers and exiles on the earth. Those who say such things show that they are seeking a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And this is the unifying theme. So we've just had Hebrews, the inspired word of God, tell us what was Abraham about? What was it that he was looking forward to? He was looking forward to a city. Okay? And what's the end of the... So that's the beginning. That's Genesis. That's like, you know, Genesis 15 or so. You know, real, real, real early in the Bible. And and you see this theme of God building a city. That's the end of Revelation, right? The descent of Zion, the city of Zion into the world. And, and actually being here. So one of these themes is that God is building a city. God, and, and, and there's so much in what a city is. A city is a way of life. It's a culture. It's a place that you have assemblies and households and marriages and, and, and a place where you live your life, 
right? The city is this, is this superstructure in the ancient world. And then this connects to the idea of the kingdom of God, that God is setting up his kingdom. But this theme runs through all of the scriptures. And it's what we're looking forward to. It's what we're seeking. It's what we're longing for. And, and these scriptures, I mean, when, when you, when you have read through Isaiah and, and, you know, Isaiah talks about that there's a heavenly city whose, whose foundations are set with, with rubies and sapphires and, and, and it's built, the whole city, the city wall is built out of precious stones, like rubies and sapphires and, you know, not, not diamonds, but, but, they, they, they go through this list of precious stones and, and the, the mortar of the city is actually this, uh, this, this semi-precious metal. Uh, I mean, a metal that was actually used as, as, as currency at certain places. Cause it's a precious metal. So this city is, is eternal. That's the point. And, and Isaiah is looking forward to this eternal city that's set with these foundation stones. That's what, that's part of what they're referencing. And, and, and Hebrews says, Abraham longed for this. This was what Abraham said he thought to himself that he was waiting for. He was waiting for God to establish a city. Interesting. What do you think, Joe? I think that is, uh, that is great when we understand that. You know, I was thinking that while you were talking to David, you know, though I walk through the, shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I mean, he, we live in the world here and now. All the saints did. All the all of Old Testament saints did. All the New Testament saints. And it's not like we don't fear physical death. It's not like we're different uh, in that extent. But we're not putting all our eggs, so to speak, in this worldly basket. Right. And even though we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, like everyone else, we have an eternal hope. We have a desire for something more than this. Mm. We see it from afar, but we see it, we long for it, we desire for the new Jerusalem Mm -hmm. that comes down from heaven, the heavenly thing. I think where you're going with this is great. Yeah. Well, and so, again, the Bible is one book written by one author for one purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, well, just, I'm going to say, first of all, we can't say that purpose in human language. The purpose of God is, is so big and so complex. You know what, you know what says the purpose of God? The book, right? Read it. 60, all 66 <laughs> book, every word in that book is necessary for you to understand the purpose of God. You got to read the book. Okay. So anytime we say in, in something as short as a sentence or a paragraph or a sermon or a day of speaking, you know, we're, sh- we're shorthanding it, right? We're giving a summary. We're giving a, uh, something that's, that's not quite complete. But thankfully, God has given us some biblical metaphors that we can, we can use and know that in some sense they're accurate. So one way, and it's not inaccurate, though it's incomplete, to describe God's purpose. What is, what is the purpose of the book? To tell us about that God is building a city. To tell us what our role is in the city, how to live in it, and how to, how to, in, in some senses, to, to be built up into it, right? There's that passage in 1 Peter 2. We are, we are living stones. We're being built up into this city. Right? So we're, we're part of the city. We're part of the walls of the city. God is using us to construct the city in some way. But it's an accurate statement to say that the Bible is about the city that God is building for his son, mind you, not for us. I mean, we get to enjoy some incredible benefits, right? Crazy good. It's good to be a footman in the house of the Lord. It's good to be a citizen of the heavenly city, but the city is not ours. The city is for Christ as everything else is for Christ. But we should, we, we are just amazed at, at what we have. And I'm going to, I'm going to read one more passage from Hebrews and then, and then kind of give some concluding remarks. But for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, right? And that, that's what happened in, in the Old Testament. This is Sinai. This is the giving of the law. 
Verse 19, to a trumpet blast or to a voice that made its hearers beg that no further word could be spoken, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to myriads of angels in joyful assembly, to the congregation of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that's probably all the all the, the things that, that read my point, but I can't stop. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if the people did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but heaven as well. These words once more signify the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that the unshakable remain. Therefore, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled with gratitude and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And believe me when I tell you people, that is what the whole book is about, right? When you read it from beginning to end, this is what this is what the book is about. And I want to get I want to get practical here. This is about God fulfilling his promises. This is about God working out in history and, and in us and in his word biblical patterns, right? Biblical types. The most famous biblical type that we all uh, understand is Christ. But then we also understand that, that typology helps us understand other things about the scriptures. So for instance, the Trinity. How do we know the things that we know about the Trinity? Well, one of the ways is we go through the Bible and we look at all the times that God sets things up in threes, and we understand that God, in, in a superseding manner, is orchestrating history and orchestrating how the, the words was written in the Bible to tell us something about the Trinity. Because it's important what happened in this, you know, whatever it was, you know, that, that there were three uh, angels that came to, to, um, to Abraham and there were three wise men or three gifts that, 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 that were given to, to Christ, right? And, and that's important to the story. But it's also important to, to re remind us that God is a Trinitarian God. God is a, a three-in-one God. That threeness is, is part of the story, right? So God, one of the other, just as an aside, the Bible is not a work of fiction. When I say it's a story, it is a story. It's a history. But it is not a work of fiction. It is instead a work of nonfiction. And like all good authors of nonfiction, God signposts things for us. So when he's making a point about the Trinity, he sign he flags it with the use of a three, um, and and then there's some other there's uh, some of the basic things when he, when he's making a point about covenant, he signposts it with five. Uh, you know, you, you may recall that the law Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy five five books of the law five books of the covenant. All of the the later references to covenant in the Bible and many within the the initial five books, refer to this fivefold structure. There's some amazing work that's been done by people looking at the fact that God, God apparently, when he sets up a covenant, he, he go, does it in five steps and he likes those steps and he's never changed from, from Genesis 1 all the way through. Um, I mean, Revelation follows this, this structure of the, of the fivefold covenant, literally all the way through. And then we have things like creation, where God is 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 setting up His nature in 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 seven days, and then there's seven festivals, and and which is in many ways a an annual reoccurrence of the creation. And then there's seven articles in the temple, which is when the priest sacrifices. That's a daily redoing of creation. That's why you do it in seven parts, because we're we're hearkening back to this initial God creating, and and we can follow these themes through the whole scriptures, because God is one God. Because the Bible is one book 
written by one author for one purpose. So, And when people get so lost in the minutia, when they start to divide the word up and say, well, you know, we've, we've just kind of got to look at, well, these are the Pauline epistles and these are the Petrine epistles and, you know, this, is, this book written by this author, da, 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 da. You miss the fact that, that God is linking up his scriptures, that God is, is giving re- revelation and then, and then going back and, and giving humans more and then, and then helping us a little bit more. And, and that the, the Bible is this amazing self-defining document where we start in, with Abraham with these very tangible principles. Right, we start with when Moses. Everything the Bible gives us, the, the, we have the the very tangible, visceral, uh, literal experience that these people had, and we can empathize with that. Right, we we, we know what it would be like to go to a mountain to to, to see. Well, we don't know kind of the emotional impact, but but we can imagine. Right, that's a tangible thing to see a, a, a physical mountain with thunder and lightning and the signs of the power of God. Right. And then God says, okay, that was a picture. That was a, that was a defining concept. And now I'm going to, I'm going to use that concept, that word. I've given you vocabulary. Now let's talk, you and me. Which is, which is amazing. And we should just be, be struck with awe over that. But as we, as, as we move forward, as we start to talk about the bigger picture themes of the Bible and what that means for today, where, where a lot of Christians live in this world where they just have a bunch of disconnected thoughts of, well, this is, you know, these are my opinions and these are biblical opinions and I get this from this scripture and I get that from that scripture and they don't have any sense of story. They don't have any sense of what God is doing in the big picture. And so, you know, we, we have all too many of us think that we can live our lives, you know, as seems good to us because we have nothing, no other story to tell. And that, I think, is a direct consequence of not taking seriously the idea that the Bible is one book written by one author for one purpose. So, I think that's all I've got. Joe, any, any, any thoughts as we, uh, as we finish out the episode? Well, one thing is, uh, you know, you went on a, a real pointed, at the, at the end here, you know, uh, which was based the points that you were making were based on reason, intellect, understanding, which really points to the fact that the Christian faith isn't a blind faith. If anything, it's just the opposite. I mean, we use our reasoning capabilities. At the very same time, you quoted a verse from Hebrews chapter 12, you know, instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This isn't seen this is unseen. You've come to myriads of angels in joyful assembly of the congregation of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that, the blood of Abel. So there I see this perfect balance and how... You know, you're bringing this home with reason, with understanding, taking what needs to be taken literal. At the same time, this is a faith in the unseen. You know, if we hope in the things that we see, that's not hope. Right. And hope is faith in the future. And you've been talking largely here about the future, about the new Jerusalem, and that's faith. Faith in what we do not see, even though we're using human faculties, human reason, human intellect to come to the right conclusion of what God means by what he has written. And with that, I'm going to conclude and we'll conclude this lesson. Yeah. When I pray, Lord God, I thank you that you gave us your word. I thank you that it is this, this miracle, that it is divine. I pray that your church would really awaken to the amazing thing that we have in our possession. I pray that they would begin to, to read it and understand the story that you're telling. And I pray and I believe that all true Christians who understand, who begin to understand the story that you're telling will find within themselves a longing to, to, to live in that story. We have a better story. 
we have a better story. I thank you so much. And, and, and I, I, I am filled with gratitude that you have, you have given us a citizenship in, in your heavenly city. And I pray that, that, that me and Joe and, and our, our communities and, and, and that the church would begin to live lives that, that reflect our citizenship in your city, that we would live as though, as though we belong to your city. In Jesus name. Amen. You've been listening to that. They might know the episode entitled the Bible one book. I hope if you're listening today and on occasion have had doubts arise in your mind, doubts as to the validity of the Bible and even the existence of God, that you will take courage in his holy word. There's no other book that so many people have died for and trusted in so completely. You know, 500 years ago, Christianity was turned in a completely different direction as a band of men rediscovered the gospel message that had been all but completely lost for 900 years. The very first tenet regarding the recovery of the gospel came to be known by the Latin terminology sola scriptura, or the scripture alone. That's right. It was not that in the church that men found their greatest comfort, but in God's word. In fact, the church of that time hunted down and killed those who trusted in God's word out of fear that they might lose their place. The religious of Jesus' day hunted him down in order to put him to death so that they might not lose their sphere of influence. Either we trust in God through his word or we trust in men. We do hope that you will trust in God by trusting in his word alone. On behalf of Greg and myself, goodbye and may the Lord bless you with his own presence as he surely will as you trust.